0: This morning, I'm going to start off with a bit of a piece of trivia, and not so much trivia as maybe bizarre historical quotes or facts. In AD 178, the Greek philosopher Celsus wrote this, and I want you to ask yourself the question, what was he talking about as I read this? They are like a swarm of bats, or ants creeping out of their nest, or frogs holding a symposium around a swamp or worms convening in the mud." High praise, right? What was he talking about? Anybody want to guess? Let me read the rest of the quote for you to give you a little context. "'Let no cultured person draw near, none wise and none sensible. For all that kind of thing we count evil. But if any man is ignorant, if any man is wanting in sense and culture, if anybody is a fool, Let him come boldly to become a Christian. We see them in their own houses, wool dresses, cobblers, the worst, the vulgarest, the most uneducated persons. They are like a swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nest, or frogs holding a symposium around a swamp, or worms convening in the mud. He's talking about Christians, those that claim the name of Christ. And how do you respond to this? Does it frustrate you? Does it make you angry? Does it make you irritated? Do you find that what he's saying is unfair? This is the way the world of Paul's day viewed Christians. And in some ways, this is the way the world of our day views Christians as well. Those people that are out of touch, those people that don't really understand modern, sophisticated society and culture. Those people that live by an antiquated 2,000-year-old book. And yet, if we find ourselves frustrated by the insignificance that the world gives us as Christians, the text in 1 Corinthians this morning is exactly for us. Paul's words to this church in Corinth are for us this morning. Look in your Bibles. We're going to read 1 Corinthians verse 26 through chapter 2 verse 5. Paul writes this, "'For consider your calling, brothers,' Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness, and in fear, and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power." so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray. Father, we confess that it's easy uh, to think we have the strength to do things in our own power. It's easy to think that we belong and we fit in this world. But we confess that the things we hold on to are totally contrary to what the world values. Lord, help us to discern correctly what this passage is saying to us, Lord, use it to shape us and mold us. Use it to remind us of our dependence and our need for you. Just think of those words that we just sang, hallelujah, all we have is Christ. Lord, we proclaim that today. You are all we have. And we need you here this morning as much as we've ever needed you. We need you to help us understand this passage. Lord, so speak through me. Use my words in the lives of your people for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were with us last week, then you know how we saw every believer is called to simply expectantly and dependently preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. And Paul established, you'll recall from last week, that the message rather or that the message rather than the messenger is the priority. This week in this text, he elaborates on why that principle is so critical, why that is so important for us as Believers. And as such, I've entitled this week's message, Arrogance Undermined. Arrogance Undermined. We're going to look through this section and we're going to three, see three things that undermine our superiority and our arrogance, our pride as Christians. First, we're going to see that human arrogance dies when we consider our calling. Verses 26 through 29 of chapter 1. Human arrogance dies when we consider our calling. Then we'll see that human arrogance dies when we remember our Redeemer, when we remember our Redeemer in verse 30 and 31. And then lastly, Paul turns the focus back onto himself in chapter 2, and we learn that human arrogance dies when we prioritize God's power, when we consider our calling, when we remember our Redeemer, and when we prioritize God's power. And Paul starts off here not pulling any punches. He goes right after their self-reliance and their arrogance as Christians and we consider our calling. Look at verse 26, he says, "'For consider your calling, brothers.'" This term, consider, means literally to look, to reveal, to see. Examine it for what it is, as if it was illuminated for you. Consider the state in which you were when you were called to Christ. And note here, he calls them brothers again. Again, Paul is not sitting on his high horse speaking down to this Corinthian church. He's saying, you are brothers, we're all in this together. But he says, consider your calling, consider our calling. And then he speaks to what they were when they were called into the church, when they were called into faith with Christ. He says, not many of you were wise. Not many of you were wise. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Now imagine for a moment sitting in this church as this letter is being read aloud. it's Like, well, yeah, maybe that's true, Paul, but you didn't have to say it so that it would end up in the Bible and people would be reading about it for thousands of years. He says, not many of you were wise. By worldly standards, not many of you possessed a lot of human knowledge or intelligence. You weren't these amazing philosophical minds that astounded the Greek world of your day. He says, not many of you were powerful. Now, this term specifically conveys the idea of influence and political power, political change, the ability to change the world and influence the direction of the culture. He says, Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you had influence and power to direct what your culture was doing and where it was going. Not many of you were of noble birth, or not many of you were significant in society. Not many of you were the ones that people looked to as the movers and shakers in your culture. This isn't shocking if we recognize that the vast majority of the church was likely slaves. Remember, nearly half the population of Corinth was slaves, and most of the church would have been slaves in this day. But Paul isn't putting them in their place exactly. He's not trying to make them feel shame. He's actually presenting these things as a good thing. Did you pick up on that? It says not many of you were powerful, not many of you were, were um, wise, not many of you were strong or of noble birth, but God. We could fill a book with the things we read in the New Testament, but God, right? He says, but God, look at verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. He says, you didn't come from an incredible place. You weren't the movers and shakers in your society, and that is precisely why God chose you. You were foolish. You were weak. You were not of noble birth, but God chose you to shame the wise. God chose what was foolish to shame the wise. God chose what is weak to shame the strong. God chose what is despised and lowly to bring to nothing the things that are. Remember Christ's words, right? It's easier for a camel to get through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. In some ways, he's looking at these people and he's saying, you want this high place in society, you want to be movers and shakers But the fact of the matter is, those things are actually obstacles to your salvation. Instead, God chose you because you were weak. God chose you because you were foolish. God chose you because you were lowly. Why? To shame the world. To put the wisdom and the power and the influence of the world to shame. As I was reading this week, Tom Schreiner's commentary on this I found fascinating. He noted two ironies here as Paul is speaking to this Corinthian church. The first is that he says it's ironic that Paul is reminding them of how they were called to the church, to Christ, because the Corinthian church desired a high position, right? They desired to be those that were influential in their culture, but God chose the lowly. Read the Gospel of Mark sometime. The irony found in the Gospel of Mark is that everybody that society would look at as should be able to understand the message of Christ totally misses Jesus. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, the disciples, the Jews, and instead those that understand why Jesus came were the Gentiles, the lowly, the weak, and the outcasts of society. And Mark highlights that again and again. It's ironic because the Corinthians wanted these high positions. The second irony is that the Corinthians desired status. They thought they were impressive in their culture when they actually lacked it. The quote from Celsus reminds us the way the the Gentile word, the Greek world, looked at Christians. And so these Corinthian believers were jockeying for position and a place in their society when the truth was everything about their message and their Savior was rejected by their culture. He says, this is ridiculous. This doesn't make any sense. Look at verse 29, he goes on and he says, why did God do this? This is critical, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He chose the outcasts of society, he chose the last in society, he chose those that are not influential in society so that human beings might boast or might not boast in the presence of God. On its face, this makes sense to us, doesn't it? right? Standing before the throne room of God, imagine Isaiah's vision of God and his glory surrounded by angels and rainbows and magnificence. We go, I can't boast in front of God. I'm not that powerful. I'm not that strong. But aren't we hardwired for arrogance? Don't we naturally tend toward arrogance as people? Have you ever noticed how everyone is the hero of their own story? Have you ever examined the news feeds on social media, of your friends and neighbors and coworkers? They're the grand hero working out their story against the daunting odds of their enemy and their boss and their coworkers and all that, right? Have you ever noticed how easy it is to get someone talking about themselves? To get someone sharing about their story and what they think is important and valuable? We are hardwired for arrogance as people. But the truth is, God chose us, the foolish, the weak, and the lowly to shame the world and to put an end to human arrogance. Think about that for a moment. We are not here today in the church because we are looked at as wise and powerful and influential in our community. And at this point, you're probably going, Brad, thank you for that. This is not the sort of message that builds a church. Couldn't you just be encouraging? Couldn't you just be uplifting? Couldn't we just get a pep talk this morning? There is a sense in which you can build a following by getting the right influential people. You can build a church by getting the right kinds of people that draw people to themselves. I don't know, maybe if I were to wear skinny jeans, we would be more impactful that way. Trust me, nobody wants to see me in skinny jeans, okay? (laughs) But we tend to think in those kind of terms. We tend to think in worldly terms as if we were to operate the way the world operates as if somehow that's the special sauce for the church. And that's what the Corinthian church was guilty of. He says, God didn't choose you because you were influential. He didn't choose you because you were strong. He didn't choose you because you were wise. He chose you because you were foolish, weak, and lowly. Kind of like the story of Gideon in the Old Testament, right? I've heard people wax eloquent and how the 300 people that he took into battle were chosen and how they were these exceptional soldiers. No! That's not the point of the story of Gideon. God did an amazing thing to lift up his power alone and defeated an army of thousands with 300 men. And that's God's exact same plan here in the church. And if you think about this, this is actually really critical for us to understand. It's not a message of self-positivity. But have you ever been humbled in a significant way in your life? Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you thought... You were pretty impressive where you thought you were in pretty good shape and all of a sudden the ground was pulled out from underneath you and you realized just how small you were. Maybe it was a work experience or maybe it was you played a sport in high school and got to the college level and realized, wow, I'm not nearly as good at this as I thought I was. The the reality is that possessing an attitude of inadequacy makes you aware of your spiritual need. This church was so impressed with their own abilities, they were so impressed with their leaders, they were so impressed with their skills and their talents and their position in the world, that Paul has to remind them that in order for God to use them, he had to first show them that they were inadequate. And Paul isn't trying to be cruel here. He's not trying to destroy their self-confidence. What Paul is trying to do is he's trying to ground their confidence in something real something better than their own abilities. Look at verse 30, and we'll see how human arrogance dies when we remember our Redeemer. Look at verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He points them back to their position in Christ. He says, you are in Christ Jesus. Now, what does that term mean? We need to spend a little bit of time explaining what that term means. Paul uses it 13 times in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a favorite phrase of Paul. He uses it in other New Testament books as well. It's used a total of 91 times in the New Testament. You are in Christ. And I did a survey of these 91 times, and I attempted a definition of what this seems to convey throughout the New Testament. This is what I came up with. Being, quote, in Christ is to be so united to and sustained by Christ that his blessings are given to us. It's to be so united to and so sustained by the person and work of Christ that his blessings, what he has earned, is given to us. Blessings like his righteousness, blessings like his freedom, blessings like his unity, his inheritance, the list goes on and on and on if you read these verses in the New Testament. And that's precisely what Paul says here. And because of him, because of God, his plan before the creation of the world, you are now in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He says, Christ became to us wisdom. And I'm not going to bore you with the details of Greek grammar and the way this all works, but essentially the point is Wisdom is the primary thing that he's talking about and the three things that follow are like a sub list that explain the gifts we have. So he says, Jesus Christ who became wisdom from God. What he's talking about is the gospel. He's talking about the message that they needed a savior and the only one who could do that work was Christ Jesus on their behalf and the only way to have the blessings he's going to talk about is by freely accepting that gift of salvation through the personal work of Christ. Because of that, not because you were so amazing, not because you were so wise, or not because you were so powerful, but because of what Christ did for you, you now have righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. You now stand before God guiltless. You are now righteous in Christ's Christ's clothes, in Christ's righteousness. He's put his righteousness on you. You have received sanctification. This is the same terminology that we used early on in the book when he said you've been given sanctification, right, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 2. He says you have the sanctification of Christ. God looks at you through the lens of Christ. And then lastly, he says redemption. Being in Christ has earned you redemption. This restored relationship with God, this restored being purchased back and bought back with the blood of Christ you are now redeemed. And all of these things are because of God's wisdom and your position in Christ, not because of your amazingness. I don't think that's a word, but hear me. Not because you were so amazing. Everything of value that we have as Christians is found in the person and work of Christ. We have to remember that. We didn't bring things to the table. We didn't add in addition to what Christ supplied for us We are entirely dependent upon Christ. And so as a result, verse 31, our disposition toward God and toward Christ should be, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's that simple. You are so busy boasting about yourself. You are so busy boasting about your impressiveness. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He goes back and he quotes that passage we read earlier. Turn to the left in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 9. I want to reread that, verse 23 and 24. Because in Jeremiah, in many ways, God is doing the same things to the Israelites that he's trying to get this Corinthian church to understand. He's humbling them in the book of Jeremiah. Look at verse 23 and 24, just briefly here. He says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Think your wisdom is so impressive? Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. He says, it's not about you. You think you're wise. You think you're mighty. You think your riches mean something. But all of that is vain boasting. If you want to boast in something, boast in the Lord and what he's done for you. See, what he's trying to get them to understand is that they shouldn't be boasting in their own strength. That is a foundation of sand that is destined to crumble if you trust in your own strength in this life at some point it's going to let you down but the reality of the situation ensures the security of our strength he says if you want to boast in something that's never going to change if you want to boast in something that's truly impressive boast in the lord now take a moment and think about this if the only valid source of our boasting is Christ, what does that mean for our lives? Think about your own life. Think about your own walk. How much of your time is spent talking about yourself and how much of your time is spent celebrating Christ's work in you? Think about it for a moment. I don't mean to just pick on social media, uh, But the truth is, it's a pretty good indicator of what's important to us, isn't it? Social media is designed to make you narcissistic. It's designed to make everything about you. You, I mean, the, the, the programming is out there. They will tell you that, Facebook and Twitter and all of them. They'll tell you that. It's designed to make you focus more on yourself. It's designed to feed that natural human arrogance that we all suffer from. If the only valid source of our boasting is Christ, what do we spend our time talking about? What do we spend our time excited about? What do we boast in, ourselves or our Savior? The truth of the matter is Christ changes lives, not men. Christ changes lives, not men. He's trying to help the Corinthian church understand this because they had become infatuated with themselves. And so he has to first humble them by saying, think about what you were called out of. Think about who you were when you were called to Christ. Think about your Redeemer and what he has earned for you, not what you've earned for yourselves. And then he brings it full circle and he says, just in case you think I'm just preaching to you, let me tell you a little bit about myself. And we learn that human arrogance dies when we prioritize God's power. Look at verse 1 and 2. I love Paul's introduction here. This is is not the way you would introduce a conference speaker, by the way. This is Paul's self-introduction to just impress the Corinthians. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Think about that. If I were to introduce a guest speaker, if I were to go to a conference and try to get business leaders to listen to this impressive businessman, and I would say, look, this guy is so impressive, he knows nothing except Christ. He doesn't have lofty speech or any real wisdom to add, he just has Christ. I'm sure they would be packing out the auditoriums to listen to somebody like that, right? But this is how Paul introduces himself. He says, I'm a foolish preacher. I came to you, brothers. He says, I'm right there with you. I'm a brother in Christ. When I came to you, I didn't proclaim with lofty speech and wisdom. He points them back to Acts 18 that we read at the beginning of our series, and he says, think about your initial calling. I was called out of nothing just like you were. In fact, in some ways, I am the worst of all sinners, right? That's the way Paul refers to himself, because he was persecuting the church. But He said, I wasn't impressive. I was a foolish preacher with a foolish message. I didn't proclaim to you with lofty speech and wisdom. That's exactly what we talked about last week. I just proclaimed the gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Right? We need this reminder that salvation is through the simple gospel preaching. The church's priority is simple gospel preaching because salvation comes through simple gospel preaching. Whereas as are an individual that I was interacting with on this text coming up to this Sunday, put it, the church isn't meant to provide a platform for political opi- or for public opinion but rather simply to preach the word. Think about that. The church isn't meant to provide a platform for public opinion, but rather to simply preach the word. There's a lot of things that I could get up here and I could tell you. I have a lot of opinions on a lot of subjects. You have a lot of opinions on a lot of subjects. But the priority of our preaching, the priority of our church, is the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, because that is all we have of value. We could espouse our opinions, and we could espouse all of the impressive things that we think we know, and to the world, it's just going to look like foolishness. We preach Christ. That's exactly what we talked about last week. And then he circles back around to remind them of himself. Again, think of this as the introduction to the conference speaker. And I was with you in weakness, and in fear, and much trembling. I want to really impress you with this speaker, guys. He's weak and he's fearful and he trembles when he's speaking. Right? These are not things the world values. He says, I was with you. I love this. I was with you. I was right in this with you. I'm no different. I'm not special. I was with you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling. I love this. I also, I resemble this remark. I am terrified of public speaking. You may not realize this but I hate public speaking. <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> I, don't know, like. I check my phone three or four times because <laughs> I'm like really crazy about it, right? But he says, I was with you in weakness. I was with you in fear. I was with you with much trembling, the reality is, if someone gets up here to share the word of God and they are not intimidated by the task, they have no desire to, or they have no right to be up here. If any of us claim to profess the gospel and the word of God without the power and the influence of the Spirit, we are in bad trouble. So Paul says, I was weak. I was fearful. I was trembling. There was nothing special about me. I was just the delivery for God. He describes his speaking as not plausible words of wisdom, but demonstrations of the Spirit and of power. I love this. Demonstrations of the Spirit and power, rather than these wise words that the Greeks would have valued. Remember, Greeks want wisdom. He says, I came in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now, some argue looking at this passage, and this is talking about supernatural miracles, but I think that's really missing Paul's point. Remember, he looked back early and he says, the Jews demanded a sign. That's not what he's talking about here. Instead, he's talking about the supernatural power to change a heart and to change a life. The incredible reality of this simple message transforming the hearts, minds, and souls of those that hear it. See, we long for amazing. We want supernatural. We want astounding things. We want powerful preachers and things that shock and awe us. And we miss the real miracle of Christ changing a heart and a life. One of the commentaries I was reading this week by William Barclay, he told a story that he had been told. It goes something like this. He says, A man who had been a reprobate and a drunkard was captured by Christ. His workmates used to try and shake him and say, Surely a sensible man like you cannot believe in the miracles that the Bible tells about. You cannot, for instance, believe that this Jesus of yours turned water into wine. The man responded, Whether he turned water into wine or not, said the man, I do not know. But in my own house, I have seen him turn beer into furniture. (laughs) Ah, you get it (laughs) now. Right? He's saying, I I don't have it all figured out. Now, again, we're not undermining, and, and neither is the author here, undermining the miraculous that we see in the Bible. But what he is saying is you are missing the miraculous change of a heart. He comments on this, he says, no one can argue against the proof of a changed life. It is our weakness that too often we have tried to talk men into Christianity instead of in our own lives showing them Christ. He's not saying that we don't have to declare the gospel. He's not saying that we don't share the message. That's not Paul's argument here. But what he's saying is the power of the Spirit is demonstrated in the change of a heart. Do we display that to a watching world or do we try to awe them with our eloquence? And it all comes to a point here in verse 5. God's purpose for sending this preacher with this message to this people is so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Your faith is resting in your own strength right now. Your faith should be resting in the power of God. Your faith needs to be in God, not men. Which brings us to our key point for this week The message that I think we all need to remember and take away from this text. God undermines human arrogance by calling the lowly, redeeming them completely, and using them powerfully. Think about that. God does not call the high and mighty. He does not call those that are the movers and shakers in society. He calls those that are lowly. And he transforms and he changes their hearts to redeem them completely. And then he sends them out as weak vessels to do mighty work in his world. Not in their own strength. Not in their own power. Not in their own arrogance and ability. Follow Paul's logic here. God sent what the world sees as a foolish preacher with a foolish message to a foolish people, and it was successful God sent a foolish preacher with a foolish message to a foolish people, and still it was successful. It took the world by storm. That is the God we serve. Let him who boasts boast in the Lord. If you are infatuated with your own ability and your own things, boast in the Lord. He said, It's not about us. Corinthian church, it's not about you. All of these battles and all of these fights that you're experiencing in your church are because you're not looking to who it's really about. Look at the God you serve. And if that is true, where is there any glory or any boasting left for any of us? We can't boast in our wisdom, it's just foolishness. We can't boast in our strength, it's really weakness. We can't boast in our position. We have none. We can't boast in our leaders. They're nothing special. We can't boast in our speech. It's simple. We can't boast in our salvation. We didn't earn it. We can't boast in our faith. We didn't supply it. We can only boast in our Savior. That's what he's trying to get them to understand. That he who boasts, boasts in the Lord. I love the way that John MacArthur puts this he says, God's wisdom is a kind of paradox. In human thinking, strength is strength. Weakness is weakness. Intelligence is intelligence. But in God's economy, some of the seemingly strongest things are the weakest. Some of the seemingly weakest things are the strongest. And some of the seemingly wisest things are the most foolish. The paradox is not by accident, but by God's design. Weakness and insufficiency are the climate in which God's strength is made manifest. Think about that. Weakness and insufficiency are the climate in which God's strength is made manifest. We are infatuated with strength and wisdom and power and influence and those that seem to be movers and shakers in the world And he looks at this church and he says, weakness and insufficiency are the climate in which God's strength is made manifest. You want to do great things for God, you must first recognize that you have no ability to do that in your own strength. If you would be used by God, you must first recognize that you are not up to the task. And this is where it gets a bit personal. Because what God's broken church needed most was to be broken of their human self-reliance. That is what this Corinthian church needed to be broken of. They were dysfunctional and they were struggling and they were fractioned because they weren't broken before the Lord, because they weren't dependent upon his power, because they were self-reliant and prideful. And what we need most is to be broken of our human self-reliance too. Every one of us, because the natural tendency of the human heart is toward arrogance, to think we can do things in our strong strength, and we can make things happen, and we can change the world if we just get the most influential people possible. To that church, he says, you need to be broken and you need to be dependent in order for God to use you.